Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The Violet by Jane Taylor. Down in a green and shady bed, a modest violet grew. Its stalk was bent, it hung its head, as if to hide from view. And yet it was a lovely flower, no colors bright and fair, it might have graced a rosy bower instead of hiding there. Yet there it was, content to bloom, in modest tints arrayed, and there diffused its sweet perfume within the silent shade. Then let me to the valley go, this pretty flower to see, that I may also learn to grow in sweet humility. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What does it mean to be a girl? How do girls become women? How might books shape girls into women? The Christmas term 2020 96 thesis, the quarterly newsletter of Wittenberg Academy, brings to our consideration the life of girls. Within that, Miss Ellie Mummy brings forward for us 10 books girls should read before they are 21. Joining us today to discuss the first half of her list is Miss Ellie Mummy. Ellie, some time ago, we discussed 10 books boys should read before they are 21. And now we come to the much-anticipated list for girls. But before we get into that list, there's an elephant in the room that we must discuss. There might be more than one elephant, but I'm only identifying one. <laughs> so we're just going to deal with one elephant uh, as, as we move forward here. When we discussed the boys list, we discussed the journey from boyhood to manhood. When considering the girls list, are we considering a journey? I actually think the quote or the poem that you read at the beginning of the episode does kind of a great job of illustrating the difference because it's more about growth and growth in place with women and with girls than it is a physical journey. Uh, which it's more akin to as a boy and in a boy's life. So I think there's elements to which you could call it a journey, but I think it's more rooted in place and more of a growth system like a flower. I think that's one of the reasons women get compared to flowers a lot is that it's much more like growth and rooted in your background and your history and your lineage then it is a physical journey and that's kind of interesting because as you were talking there the passage from mark matthew the passage that talks about a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife there is written within that mm -hmm. A, a leaving, a journey, a motion that is associated with men, at least there, that is not associated with women. Yeah, I think that is a really interesting passage to me because it goes against what we tend to act like or speak like in modern culture. 
But I think there is a duality to it because you have the man leaving his father and mother in a very real way to take on a wife and a family of his own. But you also have, at least in the modern society, the woman taking the man's name. And there's a lot of really interesting things that go along with that. And actually one of the last books on the list that we'll discuss next time, I think does a brilliant job of talking about that duality of how a man's journey looks compared to how a woman's journey looks and how different they are in that the man's is this physical journey where he has to set off and the woman's journey is is a change in the way that she already is or in the place that she already is. Yeah, I like that. I'm excited, not only for our conversation today, but now we've kind of put forward that hook that will bring our listeners back for part two. Well, let's dive in. Take us through these books and why you encourage every girl to read these books. Sure. So in a very similar way to the boys list, these are arranged semi in the order of how I would recommend you read them. You certainly can move them around if you'd like to, but especially these first few books are more geared towards young ladies. You can read these at a very young age. Uh, so we get to kind of talk about the adolescence of being a little girl. So a very, very young one, typically even under the age of 10 for these first two. So the first book that we're going to discuss is The Red Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. With the disclaimer that if you are an Andrew Lang fairy book aficionado, you may choose any of the fairy books that you would like. There's 25 of them, and you can pick any of the colors that you'd like. I picked the Red Fairy Book because the Red Fairy Book contains my favorite of all of the stories from when I was a really little kid. Andrew Lang, I believe, was a poet, but he did extensive work collecting true and fictional stories that are fairy tale like So you'll have some somewhat realistic stories. You might have Lancelot and Guinevere, or you might have St. George and the Dragon. Those might come up in some of them, so some that are more real. And then you're going to have Rumpelstiltskin. You're going to have all of those classic fairy tales that we know. These collections are from 1880s to 1913, 14-ish is when he did all 25 of these. So they have really stood the test of time. And like I said, the Red Fairy book contains my favorite fairy tale from when I was a little kid, which is The Twelve Dancing Princesses. And they're just good collections for you to sit and read fairy tales. I think fairy tales are kind of in attack at the moment in modern society. And that I find very fascinating because I don't think there's a single thing that little girls gravitate towards more than fairy tales. And... I think we've done a very bad thing in that we're removing as many actual fairy tales as we can from the modern repertoire for little girls and then supplementing them instead with, uh, for example, let's say Frozen. So you're, you're giving them a fairy tale, but a modern rendition that doesn't have all of the context and doesn't have all of the background and the significance behind the fairy tale itself. It just gives you a very watered down version of it. So I think it's very fascinating that we do that and problematic because fairy tales are really important to little girls. We see that in the obsession with Disney princesses, but you're missing all the depth of the fairy tale beneath it. And now that's very interesting because as you noted, there is an obsession with Disney princesses and it seems that in 
the recent years that there has been a resurgence of that obsession with princesses, the Disney princesses. Now, back in the day, Snow White and Cinderella, and I'm trying to think back, but those were first brought to us by Disney quite a few decades ago, if I recall correctly. And then what was it in the 90s that Aladdin and so uh, which princess is that? Uh, Jasmine. Jasmine. Thank you. (laughs) Beauty and the Beast. Belle wasn't necessarily a princess, though, but she kind of gets lumped into that group. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Number one, many of them are based on very old stories that, as you said, contain all of that that context, and they are, if I may be so bold, agenda-free. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that, especially in the resurgence of the princess obsession as of late, that there's always an agenda that fights against what it is to be a woman. You know, you have this this kind of conflict between the the princess which should be the ultimate example of what it means to be a lady, what it means to be a woman, and yet many times they're acting very contrary to and and I'm speaking in broad brush generalizations, obviously, but many times there is inserted into the storyline either a a modification of the the character or a modification of the plot that kind of fights against what you and I would say is the ideal woman or the ideal girl. Certainly. And I think it really does speak volumes how many of the classic princesses and even the more modern princesses come directly from fairy tales because you have all of the classic princesses do. Snow White is from Snow White and Rose Red. Sleeping Beauty is a classic fairy tale. The Little Mermaid is a classic fairy tale. Same with Aladdin and the Forty Thieves. You have all of these very, very classic things. Frozen is from the Snow Queen. You have Tangled, which is Rapunzel. You have all of these really, really classic things. And I like what you say about agenda. And I think even more so than that, it's the lack of depth. When you go back to the old and classic Disney, I think they still had depth in a way that is good. And I I think that that's because fairy tales at their at their core and in their essence are about character. They're about how you present yourself and how you act. And fairy tales are meant to teach you, especially you as a young lady, because they center most of the time around princesses and women themselves, to teach you good qualities and bad qualities and to put those in comparison. And I think that gets lost, especially in the more modern fairy tales. I do think Tangled actually does a fairly good job of it. Tangled, I think, is probably the best as far as a modern rendition goes. 
Uh, I was actually very disappointed with Frozen when I first saw it simply because the Snow Queen was one of my favorite fairy tales as a child. I was absolutely obsessed with the Snow Queen and you miss so much of the depth of that story in Frozen because Frozen has really kind of stripped the fairy tale to be agendized a little bit, but also more than that, overly simplistic. It's, it's more cookie cutter. The Snow Queen is a complex story. All of these fairy tales are far more complex than the Disney version illustrates. I think The Little Mermaid is a good example of that. The Little Mermaid is very dark. It's not Yes, it's, it's not an upbeat, really, really exciting thing. So it's very understanding that Disney would take that and try and emulate some of those qualities and those things that little girls gravitate towards in a family-friendly, screen-friendly setting. It's very understandable. But I think that they did that with The Little Mermaid in a way that doesn't strip character away as much as it strips away character in Frozen. That's really the thing that you get from fairy tales that you don't get much else. I did a fair amount of studying. I think I spent close to a month in a classroom studying Russian fairy tales. And you get these reoccurring themes. We see these in all of the cultures. But Russia very specifically has a kind of universal bad guy in its fairy tales, a Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is like this really evil hag who all of the characters interact in in all sorts of fairy tales all the time. They run into her. But at the essence of Baba Yaga is that if you are polite and kind to her, she is your ally and she's a good character in the story. If you treat her rudely or offend her or mistreat her in any way or overstep your boundaries and trespass on her land or any of these different things, she's the villain and she's terrifying. And that's what fairy tales do is they give you very real qualities to build and focus on in yourself of respecting other people, being kind to strangers, being generous and sweet and welcoming to others in very, very fantastical, marvelous settings. You you just are kind of sucked into them. They're very interesting. And fairy tales, like the, the Lang fairy tales in the fairy books, are so much fun to read out loud. The stories are just enraptured to adults as much as kids. It's very much something that you can share with your kids because it's not just kind of bland. I don't know if I know a single mother who has uh, young girls who isn't pretty sick of the movies they have to watch over and over and over and over again. And the repetitive songs that they listen to simply because they hear them all the time. You don't get that in the same way with the fairy books because they're more complex than that and they have really rich stories. They also have a huge amount of stories. So we would read those, my sisters and I would read those over the course of days and days because there are maybe a hundred different stories in them. So you're not just repeating the same story over and over again, although we certainly did that as well. Everybody has a favorite. Mine was certainly 12 Dancing Princesses, but I didn't read it daily. I read through all the different stories and I read it as a book where they all somehow tied together and that was half the fun. I'm kind of wrapped up in this whole princess thing mm-hmm. now because I think it's just, it's such a fascinating thing. Obviously, we brought forward the the negative, the kind of shallow 
plot line, the shallow characters, sometimes even a confusion of, you know, as we're putting forth virtue and vice, that that virtue kind of appears like vice and vice kind of appears like virtue. And so you have this kind of muddying of things, especially in the the modern princess craze. But if we're going to look for a silver lining in this, the fact that princesses draw little girls and, and draw them in and they want to be like these princesses still confesses something in our world that wants to do away with distinction, right? Mm -hmm. Insofar as you have a little girl who sees a woman and wants to be like that woman or a a girl, you know, a little girl sees an older girl and wants to be like that. And there is within that a good that we should encourage. Now, unfortunately, there are all the drawbacks, right? That we just that we just mentioned. And and so maybe directing our little girls and their families to these fairy stories rather than Disney movies could revive the good that is inherent in fairy stories and princess stories. I I certainly think so. And at the end of the day, it's not it's not problematic to have your children watch the Disney princess movies. It's not problematic to watch and be infatuated with those things. I certainly loved those movies as a kid. I found them really enchanting, but I found them more interesting the more I learned about the traditional fairy tales and the more I read fairy tales because you have this visual to tie to these magical stories that you think of. And the more fairy tales and fairy stories that you read about princesses and about young ladies, the more you just have this universal understanding of what the character is meant to be. There's like a very specific, this is what it means to be a princess. This is, these are all the things that princesses do. So you're pretty expectant of how the princesses are going to act. And you can translate that and project that onto these movies that you're watching because you you know how princesses act. You know what they do. And that's a great thing. I think it rounds out the less fundamental teachings of those modern adaptions. It gives you the depth behind them and therefore make sure that you learn the lessons and can still enjoy those things. And I think my kind of my other big point with fairy tales and princess stories is that they get a lot of flack lately because it's this idea that, well, princesses aren't real. We're not going to teach our daughters things that aren't real, which is hilarious because princesses are a very real thing. Like there's princesses nowadays. We have princesses. They exist. They always have existed. And so I think it gives you the correct, not infatuation, but respect for the way that princesses carry themselves. I I think you can look at Kate Middleton and at her daughter and see they have to dress a certain way. They carry themselves a specific way. They act a certain way. They get their education in a specific way. Those things are good to see because you're then seeing that they matter. And we have this horrible, horrible tendency. And I think this could be an entire, I could have a three hour conversation about this, but 
we've we've grown into a society that thinks that it doesn't matter how you carry yourself and it doesn't matter how you present yourself and the way that you look shouldn't be considered at all. And that's not the case. And you learn that in fairy stories. You present yourself in a specific way and you carry yourself in a specific way and you attempt to be beautiful on the outside and the inside for the sake of the people around you. And we we do very little of that nowadays. And so I think it's it's good to have these princesses that you can emulate who make sure that they make their bed in the mornings, that they get get up and they brush their hair and they dress nicely and they treat the people around them with respect and with kindness and they listen. Those things are really important. And fairy stories do a great job of just teaching that to little girls because little girls naturally are going to want to be a princess and they're going to want to dress up to look like princesses and they want to act like princesses. And that is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that kind of uh, helps us transition well to the next, uh, it's not, it's not a book, but, uh, a whole series of books mm-hmm. because the character, the characters, at least the female characters that, that are, are brought forward for us actually are Queens become Queens. And so there's that continuity of hierarchy and, comportment and and all of these sorts of things. The next series, I think, really plays right into that idea of fairy tales, but in a very different way. So the next next thing on the list is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And this is honestly the most controversial thing that I put on this list, because everyone that I had discussed this list before sending it out and officially making this the list was very upset with me for putting this on this list, actually, because they don't think it speaks specifically to girls, which is funny to me because I think it speaks specifically to girls in very important ways. And I can't think of a single other series that does as good of a job at teaching young women and little girls what to emulate and how to act, which is wild. And I think that comes from the fact that little girls who read Narnia, just, I mean, they embrace it at a level I've never seen children embrace anything else. I grew up listening to the Chronicles of Narnia book on tape every night before bed. There was a point when we had abridged cassette tapes of each of the books, and I'm pretty sure I had all of Prince Caspian memorized, and that's not even an exaggeration. Those books are really fundamentally kind of life-changing in the way that they structure your viewing of the world in a really good way. And I think really importantly, they put forth women that you should emulate and learn from. You should learn from most especially, I would say, Lucy. Lucy is easily the most, the most classic character that people love in these stories, but then also Jill and Polly. Those three characters are really important. And you have them compared to Susan. You have them compared to the Lady of the Green Kirtle. You have these women who aren't being what women should be and who are casting aside those princess-like and those queenly characteristics. And then you have the women who rise up to fulfill them. And 
that I think is so important to Narnia and to the growth of little girls. And I think you don't find it anywhere as well done as you find it in Narnia. And thinking about Lucy in particular, you know, she is, is given a very important role within that story. And even as part of the plot, when the four siblings, well, the three siblings receive their, their gifts, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and she gets the little vial of uh, the, the potion. And, and I think that little girls can take from that, that even in the simplicity you know, thinking back to that poem that I read at the beginning of this episode about the kind of unassuming nature of the violet, right? That, you know, she doesn't have to be flashy. And, you know, Lucy is 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 definitely queenly. And, you know, she has those those princess virtues, but she's unassuming. And at the same time, she's extremely important in how she carries out her role and fulfills her role. And that can be very encouraging, you know, especially when thinking about the the life of a woman from a vocational standpoint. You know, being a wife and a mom are sometimes very mundane vocations, right? I mean, if you're looking at them from the outside, when you're in the throes of of those things, you know, there are adventures around every turn uh, <laughs> and unanticipated things that you, you know, when you get up in the morning, you would never say, oh, well, I bet this is going to happen today, you know? And so there's there's always that sense of adventure. But but the tasks that that we are called to carry out as wives and mothers, primarily thinking about those two vocations, there is an unassuming and unflashy manner about those. We perform our duty as wife and mother because it is our duty, not because we are going to get glory from that. And, and you very much see that in Lucy, right? Mm -hmm. That you see her doing the right thing, not because she's going to get credit for it or receive high praise for it, but because that's what she has been given to do. So she must do it. Yeah. And I think, so she, when she's crowned at the end of Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe, they crown her Queen Lucy the Valiant. I think valiant is a great word to describe her because she she does all these humble, kind of mundane looking things, but she's the one that is crowned as having courage and determination and willpower. And that I think is really telling of how C.S. Lewis felt about Lucy. She just is this character who sticks with those mundane things and with those kind of compassionate mm. things not because she thinks she is not capable of anything greater, but because she genuinely has such a kind heart and 
such a deep love for the country and for the people around her, whether or not she knows them personally, that it doesn't cross Lucy's mind to do anything else. She's going to heal everyone because of course she's going to. She doesn't, she doesn't want harm to come to them. Doesn't matter who they are. And she has this kind of immediate compassion and this steadfast love for her community and the people around them and seeing them in joy and happiness is is her entire goal and that is the opposite of a boring task to, to to undertake and a mundane task to undertake it's a huge task to undertake to take care of all those people in your life but she does it without a second thought because of course she would do it she i mean it would be very weird to her to think of questioning it I actually think one of the really great illustrations of this is in Prince Caspian when she and Aslan reunite and she and Susan and Aslan go through and kind of bring spring to Narnia and kind of spread it through everywhere and they collect the naiads and the dryads and the fawns and everyone and they're kind of like parading through Narnia not, not anywhere near the battlefield, but they parade all the way through Narnia and end up at the battlefield when the battle is done. And they're there to heal and embrace and lift up and celebrate and support those warriors who have now finished their battle. And I think that's brilliant because she concerns herself with the very, very important and very difficult work of making people in a miserable situation and in a sinful world and a messed up world feel joy and be happy and rejoice. And that is, that is Lucy's entire goal. And that is what she does. And she does a brilliant job of it. And I think that is an unheard of thing for a female protagonist's entire goal to be surround to be. And I, I love that in Lucy. I think that's really unique to her. Absolutely. I think I would also then shifting to Jill I think Jill teaches you very, very different skills. We meet Jill not in her best moments. She's not she's not a bad young lady, but she's certainly very young and in those stages where she doesn't know what to do. And she doesn't have the wisdom of knowing what the right thing to do in every situation is. Lucy sort of does have that innate ability to say, I'm not going to tell lies. I'm not going to do these things. And Jill, she struggles with that more. So, I mean, we see her push Eustace off a cliff, like two chapters into the book. Um, right. she, she's, she's still learning and growing up from that. And you see this huge amount of growth throughout the whole silver chair of her learning all of this one book after Eustace does. So she learns the same thing from someone who just learned it in a more dramatic way beforehand. And he kind of guides her through that. And she learns to be clever and she learns to use all of her, you know, wit and her smarts. She's very good at solving puzzles and figuring things out. And she's very observant, but she learns to use that and actually tap into that, those skills. And I've always pictured Jill as being a little bit awkward, kind of in that awkward stage where you're not sure as a young woman what you can do and what you can't do and she kind of wades through all of that in the silver chair and then in massive contrast we have her in the last battle and you have these glorious kind of 
little side comments that Louis throws in there with this character you're very familiar about and you know her very well, but Tyrion doesn't know her very well. And you have the king observing very quickly that she is the best of all of them at navigation using the sky. You have Eustace mentioning that she is the best archery shot that he knows. You have all these skills that she she learns all these lessons in the silver chair and then gets sent back to her, the normal world. And rather than just being like, okay, great. I had an adventure. That, that was fun. She completely changes her life and the way that her daily life goes in order to make sure that she's using those skills and that she's becoming more of the woman she wants to be. And I think that's really cool. You see her this just very quietly have this growth to be helpful and supportive of the people around her in the last battle. And it's just kind of fantastic. She, it's just throwaway comments. But those stuck with me when I was a little kid was that she went from being the silver chair person who struggled through the whole journey and didn't have the energy or didn't have the knowledge and the skills to do that to being the person who knew the Narnian stars better than the the king of Narnia and being the person who was a reliable shot with a bow and who was there to support her friends in the way that she needed to. So you see this really interesting growth that's not made a big hullabaloo out of. It's It's made out to be a natural thing and a good thing of just growing and developing as a young lady. And that's what she does. And I think that's brilliant. Well, and that brings up a good point So you have these female protagonists and their stories are all different, right? Yep. They all become women or are on their way to becoming women. They are being shaped to be women, but it looks different for all of them. Mm -hmm. And especially as women, (laughs) especially as girls, this is a very, very important lesson because comparison and envy and coveting are just a constant threat, right? (laughs) To girls, to women. So having opportunities to have these lessons reinforced for us is a very good thing. Yep. And I think you learn that, I think the other two ladies that you learn that from are going to be Polly from Magician's Nephew and Erebus from Horse and His Boy. And again, they, they have very different kind of end results. They they end up in very different places. Erebus is the only one of them who is ends up getting married and having that kind of a lifestyle. Um, none of the other ladies are really in a kind of romantic scenario at any point. And it's just, it's really fascinating how how much you learn about that comparison sort of thing. And I think you see that in little ways throughout the series where you're never meant to compare any of the ladies to each other. They all are very strong in their own ways and they have their own skills that they apply. And that's incredibly important is that they they all, they all actually, the one thing I think that unites them is they all showcase those Lucy characteristics of being resolute and kind and valiant in their own ways, which I think is brilliant, is that you have Lucy, who's a really obvious, strict example of that. And then you see 
these other women who portray it in very different ways. But they still have the same characteristics and the same kind of honorable things that they can give to the people around them, these characteristics that you want to emulate, but they're not used in the same way because they don't need to be. So I think that brings us beautifully to the next book on your list, mm-hmm. and that is The Secret Garden. The Secret Garden is another book I think you can read young. I think this book does a great job of dealing with how women view themselves. Because you you have all these characteristics and these things that when you're really little, you can remember saying, oh, you know, I want to be like Lucy. I want to be like Jill. I want to be like Snow White or Rapunzel. You You look up to these women and you have these characteristics that you really admire and want to be like. And then there's this shift that happens, I think usually around middle school, where you stop paying as much attention to those people and you start paying far more attention to yourself and how you either fall short or what you are good at. And you become very concerned with yourself and, you know, oh, I'm not any of those things. I never will be any of those things. It's just that really self-reflective age where you're concerned about what you're going to grow up to be and how you can become what you want to become. And I think The Secret Garden is the perfect book for that because you start with Mary Lennox being this self-centered little girl who is used to having everything handed to her on a silver platter. And then she gets sent to a house that's nothing like what she's used to and is cold and dark and mostly empty and It's not full of cheer and there aren't servants waiting on her every single whim. Instead, there's all of this emptiness and she has to find ways to fill the emptiness. And she goes from being this exceptionally selfish, kind of self-centered little girl who has convinced herself she can't do anything and that she's sickly and incapable of doing those things to someone who finds people in real need of love and support and beauty and joy and kindness being brought into their lives in her uncle and in Colin, who she slowly has to come out of her own self-centered kind of circle in order to say, okay, how do I, how do I make Colin feel better? How do I make my uncle happy again? And she finds these people, Martha and Dickon, who show her a very, very simplistic, very humble life of gardening and of being a family in just a close-knit way. And she stops being so self-obsessed and becomes very concerned with others. And she ends up spending the rest of the book trying to plant a garden and make Colin healthy again and bring her Uncle Joy again. And it completely shifts the book when she stopped focusing on herself. And of course, then at the end of the book, you see her as healthier than she's ever been, as happier than she's ever been, and as more capable and more of a young lady than a little girl than she was because through serving the people around her, she's she's grown up and learned those skills in a way she wouldn't have learned them in that kind of self-absorbed stage where she focuses on herself. I like that picture that really comes through 
loud and clear. I don't know how you can have a picture come through loud and clear, but just go with me on that. <laughs> but you you have this this selfish girl who is empty, right? It's like mm-hmm. a barren garden, right? Yep. There's no life there. And then through time and giving like you said, giving of herself when when she becomes selfless, instead of selfish, when she's selfless, then she finds herself full, you know, and you, you see the, you know, the garden becoming beautiful and where, where it was ugly and scraggly. And, you know, I mean, we see Mary and the garden kind of bloom and blossom together, which Mm -hmm. is a very, a very cool thing. Yes. And actually, so something very unique about the secret garden, the secret garden is one of the very few things in which I think an adaption does an absolutely brilliant job. So there is a musical version of the secret garden. I don't know if you've ever heard it or are familiar with it at all. I'm not, no. It's brilliant. It's probably 20, 25 years old now. And it's made big records when it came out because it's the first, it was, I believe, the first Broadway musical that was written by women and that had I mean the girl who played Mary was 10 years old and she did this whole show and like won a Tony Award for being 10 and playing Mary it was brilliant but the music in that show is brilliant because it showcases this in that when any of the characters are sad they're locked in their own kind of universe and they sing together and they, they can't hear each other so I wonder if stage productions do a better job of staying faithful to the the story than... I think so. I think that partially that that's because one of the things that adapters love to do, one of my actually really good friends from Bethany is does adaptions. He, he and his dad are working on a couple more at the moment. But they adapt things all the time. And the whole point is to reflect... Theater people are so obsessed with reflecting the essence of a show. And classically trained theater people are always all over Aristotle. Aristotle is like shapes everything that they do with theater. So then they end up needing to represent the essence of the thing. And they need to capture the feeling of the show. And then it's like this delightful challenge for them to adapt something so that you get everything that the book was trying to tell you in a very different format. So you even get that with, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Disney musical is, I mean, it's fine, but the theater production is brilliant. It's just like the book should be and captures more of that because that's really why the theater adaption appear is they're trying to make it more like the book or more like the original story because they can do less conventional things with a theater production and they can do visual things that will make you feel what you feel. Secret Garden is great because it feels very magical, which I think the book needs to feel magical in a way that I've never seen a movie make it feel. You, you, I mean, just, it just feels very much like you're walking around and you're like, oh, I can hear the robins sing and I know how to sing back to them because they do in the musical and I know how to do this. It's very, very good. Obviously, there are a lot of really bad movies, you know, in (laughs) terms of the movie version of the book, but it's, it's good to hear that the, the stage version or the, the musical version actually does a good job of, of staying faithful to not just the 
the letter of the book, but the spirit of the book as well. Yep. yep. So speaking of growing, uh, your next book is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, I think, is the best coming of age story for girls, which is sort of a tall order because I think Little Women, Anne of Green Gables, the Laura Ingalls Wilder series are all very beloved stories. But I think there isn't a book that is better at walking you through a coming of age story than A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And I would say that there are very few coming of age stories that are more difficult to chew in a way. It's a very easy book to read, but you sit on the concepts that you read in that story for a very long time. Triggers in Brooklyn follows Francie from the time that she is somewhere between eight and like 11 to adulthood in Brooklyn in kind of industrial era pre-World War I. So really early 1900s. And her life is not magical and it's not skipping through the kind of fields. She's very upbeat and she's very sweet and very kind, but she has a very hard life. And that's, I think, ultimately what I really, really love about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is that it doesn't give little girls the illusion that life is going to be easy and that life is perfect and that you won't make mistakes and that everything as an adult and everything in your community are always going to be good. There's there's the looming understanding in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn that, you know, we're building up to a war. There's all of the conflict of, you know, strikes and everything that came with the Industrial Revolution throughout that series. And Francie comes from a very poor family where her mom has to work all the time. Her dad works all the time. They don't have the greatest relationship. There's a lot of conflict there that she grows up watching and she has her brother with her and they go through a lot of the things that are nitty and gritty about living in Brooklyn in 1900. It's not hard to imagine kind of how difficult that must have been, but that book walks you through it full of like hope completely. And it's full of her seeing the beauty in things the way that they are rather than in a purely romantic sense. I think that's a, that's an important shift in young women. Young women need to learn that you don't love things purely because they're beautiful or pure or good. You do have to find that beauty and that love and passion for things around you that and people around you that might not be that pretty or that perfect. And that's really what she does is she sits in people watches. She will observe the people around her who are old or grumpy or foremen who are not that kind. And she always finds something fascinating about them. And there's this whole part passage of the book where she talks about reading people like books, where she loves to look at them and imagine their whole life story and how they got to be the person that they are. And that really changed me when I read the book. What It, it, it taught me to meet someone who might be really rude or really crass or really at ends with the world and to look at them and wonder, well, what is your story? What made you this way? What can I imagine the reason to be that you no longer have patience for other people? How can I 
make sense of that in my head and therefore know how to break that shell that you have. And it's, it's really brilliant. She's a really insightful little girl and you watch her go through really, really hard, really difficult things sometimes before she's prepared for them or before she understands them, but always in a way that she carries herself gracefully and knows the way to grow up. And you get this delightful interaction with her where she's always loves reading and you constantly pull back to this tree that grows in her backyard that symbolizes her growing up. So we have yet again another illusion to gardening and to plants as the way that little girls grow up is tied up in this tree that of course is younger when she's little and is still growing up to be a very strong, big, great tree, but that still stays in the same place and just affects the things around it by nature of it as a whole. So I think it's a really cool story. There's a lot of, there's a lot of gardening in this first, this first section of these and how that tie into the land and to your community is really important for her. And the big thing about this book that I don't see in many coming of age stories is learning to love the world and do good in the world, even when the world isn't that kind to you or is harsh, because that's the reality, of course, of our lives as Christians. Absolutely. And even though Francie is definitely not a princess, right? I mean, from the, the, the books that we talked about before, we're further from that. But yet at the same time, we still see some of those same themes coming forward. You think about Cinderella, for example. Things did not go well for Cinderella, but she lived and she served where she was, and she saw the best in the circumstances she was given. And I think that's what you're conveying to us about Francie's story. Yeah, so... That's also the really cool thing about the shift in this. This is a minor shift in the list. And then we're going to go back to royalty in the next book. But this is the first kind of minor shift into everyday life. And we'll have quite a few more of those in the second half of the list of characters who are not princesses, but who have those characteristics and qualities of princesses in their daily life. And the big one with Francie is that she emulates a princess or a queen's love for their community and their country that they care for. She loves Brooklyn and she loves the people around her as if she were a queen and they were her citizens, not in a lofty way, but in that pure just love and passion for them and in wishing them well and in caring for them. She has that characteristic of kindness and optimism, but also just genuine care for the people around her that we have seen in all these fairy stories that we see in Lucy. We see in these characters who are royal, but she's able to do that in a really fundamental, really important way in her community as an insignificant, supposedly little girl who comes from a poor family and lives in a poor neighborhood and just kind of goes about her life. She's able to be significant and important because she has those characteristics that are queenly, that are very princess-like, of loving her community and caring for her community and working 
for that community and for the benefit of that community, despite her own position in life. So this brings us to the last book in the first half of your list. And our listeners might be a little bit surprised by this last book on your list. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned in the last five years even is that this book, The Odyssey, almost says more to girls undeniably than it does to men. And it's about very different things than I would have initially imagined it to be when I was younger and first read it. But The Odyssey speaks to women and upholds women and puts them in very high esteem, more so than certainly any man in that book. Because The Odyssey is about very different things than I think we, especially in the modern world, consider it to be. And I've read many works about this and heard other podcasts that kind of allude to this, but The Odyssey is really about the concept of home, what it means to yearn for home and come home and what home really is. And home revolves around Penelope. This this is a book about Penelope being a very faithful, loving, and compassionate wife while her husband goes off and isn't always any of those things. Right. And she's waiting for him. And she, she is all of those things that we've discussed about every other book on this list. And she also represents everything that we see in the future books that we'll discuss. She is that person who loves her kingdom and who takes care of her people and rules them and supports them and loves them while being kind and faithful and optimistic and supportive of her husband. Even when he's been gone so long, it wouldn't be hard to question him or where he comes from or what he's doing. She still loves him and waits for him and is patient and upholds her vows and serves the people around her and especially her son. She raises her son to be really valiant, kind-hearted, brave warrior. She does all of this while patiently waiting for her husband and finding ways to uphold her marriage vows and wait for him, even when everybody else in her community tries to convince her not to. And you also get these complete contrasts to her in Circe, who is none of those things. And basically every woman that Odysseus comes across in his travels is just the opposite of her. They are all strong women who do their own thing and they're witches and they have these great power and are very enchanting and think of themselves. They're selfish. You have women trapping him on an island to keep him from ever leaving because they prioritize their own needs above his duty and his position is all while Penelope is just constantly waiting faithfully at home and tending to everything at home on Odysseus's behalf. I don't think you can find a stronger female character in all of literature than Penelope. She is absolutely resolute and unwavering in her abilities. And I think it's funny because modern society very much frowns upon women who stay at home and run a household and are home-centered. And yet in order to be home-centered, 
Penelope rules an entire kingdom for years and years and years and raises a son and makes wise decisions on behalf of her husband because that is what she she knows home to be. She keeps home in order for Odysseus when he comes back. And in her case, home is an entire kingdom, which is not very easy to manage. But I also think from talking to mothers many times, sometimes managing your home, even if it's just your own kids, is not that easy to manage. And so she does this great job of encouraging women to be silent and humble, but to keep your house in order and to make your home something that the husband and anyone else in the community yearns for and wants to come to. So her her citizens love her, but her husband ultimately is always striving to come back to her. It it is his home is his sanctuary, it's his haven and that is because of her. And I think that's that's something we don't see often anymore and that I think teaches you a lot about how you should be as a wife and how you can run your household to support your husband, not in a sort of wimpy, petty little way that we kind of view that in modern society, but instead in a really strong, resolute way. Again, she is very valiant. She's very resourceful and very clever, but she uses those things to to make there be a place of peace and of joy and of hope in a world that's full of tumult. And that's, that's really what she does. And it's brilliantly done throughout the novel in all the ways that she uses her cleverness, even in weaving and unweaving every evening to use her skills to protect the thing that she is in charge of. It's interesting thinking about the contrast between Penelope and all of these characters that Odysseus meets on his way home. And it would be interesting to... The thing that's fascinating is how many characters you need to be able to contrast the virtue of Penelope, yep. right? You you can't capture the opposite of Penelope in one character. You have to have a whole slew of them to be able to capture that. And that's a fascinating testimony to the character and virtue of Penelope. And I think that that actually speaks really, really highly and very fundamentally of marriage in that you have these women. So you have Circe who doesn't even like men, but she's this witch and she turns all the men into pigs and, and thinks very poorly of them. But then she tries to seduce Odysseus purely for her own selfish reasons. You have the sirens who do the same thing. They're just kind of luring men in for play, not really with any kind of reason behind it. And then you have Calypso who selfishly wants him to stay. And Calypso I think is the most interesting comparison to Penelope in that Calypso wants him in a purely selfish way. And the way she enchants him to stay is with weaving on her loom. Like that's how she weaves the spell, which is a direct correlation to what his wife is doing at home. Right. 
but none of these women have the depth and spend any time or effort cultivating that sense of home that he ends up yearning for. He ultimately, although he falls for these wiles for a while, he always ends up missing Penelope because of the amount of work she has put into cultivating that home and putting that home together. And I think we see that in all of these stories of romantic relationships is that when there is a woman who tempts a man away from another woman or even from his wife, they never fulfill that because they're not about home and they're not about providing that for someone else. And so of course, Penelope is this very selfless love in comparison to these women's very selfish love. That is very different. So they each portray different forms of selfish love, whereas Penelope is this clear selfless love that he comes back to because it's the thing that actually is fulfilling and brings peace and comfort to him. So even though it takes him years and years and years to get there, he knows that when he comes back, she will have him back. And he never doubts that really. And he knows that everything, that she will have kept everything the same, which I think is one of the highest compliments you could receive the amount of trust he gives to her and the way that he believes she can control everything and run his country for these years and years and years, even if it's not a conscious compliment on his regard, it shows how highly he thinks of her and of how clever and brilliant she is and how talented she is. Like she has a level of respect in the story that no one else has. Well, this was a fantastic part one and I think I can speak for our listeners to say that I'm really looking forward to part two, uh, not to leave it as a cliffhanger, but it's going to be exciting as we discuss further what it means to be a girl and be formed and shaped into a woman. Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm looking forward to part two. Yep, it, it is my pleasure. And I look forward to talking about the next few books with you soon. All right. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.